0: You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens.
1: Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagens, And today we're talking about closed-end funds, BDCs, interval funds, and all kinds of exciting product structures and a very unique strategy That my friend john cole scott uses to generate alpha for his clients john welcome to the show it's great to be here and i'm gonna uh, it's it's not a warning it's more i want to tell my listeners john is his knowledge because i had a prep call with you john it (laughs) is drink you you use the phrase drinking from a fire hose and it is like in a good way and so i want to soak up as much as I can with this episode, I want our audience to soak up as much as we can about closed-end funds, BDCs, interval funds. But before we get into all that exciting stuff, because I know you have some very unique strategies, I am wondering how you got your start. Could you share with us how you got into finance or even into this, this little, Could we call it a niche in the world of finance?
0: It is. So, I mean, I'm an undergrad psychology major from the College of William Mary in Virginia, and my father happened to go to university with a guy that also invested his lawn mowing money in the 50s in the stock market, and they thought the beta house in Walla Walla Washington was too rowdy, so they got an apartment together. Fast forward about 10 years, Eric Bergstrom has picked up some um, resources working at the American Express funds back in the 60s, And the bear market of the seventies. Oh, and my father became, got married after being the Coast Guard um, and a journalist in London. um, And he needed to have a regular job for a family. So he became a financial advisor. His uh, grandfather had been a financial advisor in Richmond, a a fifth generation back to the 1860s here in Richmond. And, and so there's the bear market of the seventies. I don't think either of us were alive for that, uh, you know, the, the bear market part. I don't know your age exactly, but it was tough and a, closed-end fund is not a new investment. They actually go back to 1893 in the New York Stock Exchange. So they're definitely durable and been around for a while. But there was a venture equity closed-end fund publicly traded called Debold Capital, and it listed, and then the stock market blew up. So let's say the NAV was $10, it fell to under 5 And then because closed-end funds have this really interesting relationship, The net asset value, just like the other funds you're probably used to, is typically reported daily. But the market price, the way you buy or sell, the liquidity component, isn't at the fund sponsor level, it's actually the free market, like you buy any ETF, any stock, anything that's publicly listed, it can dislocate on the downside and dislocate on the upside. And so basically, it went to roughly a 50 discount. So imagine for under $2 and and mid change, you can buy a $10 recent IPO and Eric had enough money, he bought over a third of the stock. My father, family, friends bought another 10 or so percent, and he became a board member of this closed-end fund that he just was starting to learn about. Now, I'm gonna fast forward a long way. You go to the 88 crash, so 87 crash, and he had focused more on these funds. He had started, you know, worked in the, the, the space, added more of them to his client portfolios, but it was maybe half of what he did. You know, he still would do other things in the market as it made sense for his clients as a registered rapper stockbroker, But when that crash happened, he just said, you know what? I'm a writer. I want to highlight this thing that I know more than other people. So he started a newsletter called the Scott Letter Closing Fund Report. And I do remember as a young child licking envelopes for slave labor to help start that business. And it never probably made a profit. But what it did is it gave him an audience. And it gave him recognition for doing good work as a journalist and an investment manager even way back when. So then in 1991, when my father was 54 years old, he co-authored a book on closed-end funds with a finance professor that was a durable college-level book. Again, I read it in high school, and it was my dad's version of having me drink from a fire hose. You know, mm-hmm. as a 17-year-old. And then soon after, there was this uh, REA firm in Santa Barbara, California, and it basically imploded. And he was known enough that the owner that, was, that survived asked him to come in as a minority shareholder, become a portfolio manager, do day-to-day, and then within a few years, we had brought it from Santa Barbara to Richmond, Virginia, where we're raised and born from, and then bought all the stock from him. And this all happened while I was in university. And you know, I actually went out to California, helped him with the company because I'm organized, or that was more organized than he was, um, and had a great time spending time with him. And then I graduated William Mary, and I just knew I liked people. I knew I liked interesting things, and my dad needed help. And he goes, Can you give me help at the firm? And so I basically joined him until I found a better job. And I'll tell you, unless you're hiring. For something really amazing, I'm probably not going to get a better job. So it's a really interesting, he didn't, I didn't plan to work with him. And then I've grown the business in in my 22 years Add We added BDCs coverage in 14. You know, we added a, built a big data business. So we aren't just an asset manager, like many advisors. That's our Mm -hmm. core business. The reason we wake up every day. But we said, you know, these other larger data providers that I probably don't have to name, make a lot of reoccurring mistakes. I can catch mistakes. I care about mistakes because I trade for clients and I like to build a quality thing. And I'm not only interested in purely profits. You have to be profitable as a business, but as a smaller business where you don't have shareholders, don't have a board, don't have bondholders, You know, we're family owned. We have no debt. We have no one that can say no to us. We built a great durable data business. And now with the advance of interval funds and non-listed BDCs, the universe is over 700 funds and over 700 billion in assets. And that's smaller than ETFs. No, that's- It's
1: smaller, but you know, Johnny, so this is, I mean, I got a couple of thoughts right on the top of my head. Well, one, it's kind of interesting that, you know, the way you grew up and got into closed-end funds it almost makes me think of like the middle ages and uh, your dad's a blacksmith. And so, you know, and you, so you apprentice to him. I'm like, it's such a, it's not, I don't want to say it's an odd little niche, but I actually love these things in finance. There's all these little nooks and crannies. And, you know, you talk to traders who literally will just trade one product, just one product. And, you know, they might make a fortune off the one product. And I honestly think in finance and investing, we need that. Like we need people who know every nook and cranny of a particular product type or particular market or else, you know, especially in public market, like we need transparency. Like we need people who understand the mainstream data that we're getting about this product type, you know, that everyone is looking at actually has, has issues. And, you know, so I just, I just kind of appreciate that. And like you said, it's, it's not the size of the ETF market. Um, On the other hand, do you think that the fact that it's a little smaller – I mean, it almost t- to me that could almost be a good thing because if it was a bigger market, you probably you'd have a harder time being a small business and kind of, you know, cornering that it, market. It, it is You know, I kind of say, you know, because you no, know, we, we are we are four W-2 employees. At,
0: we've grown to be three programmers and seven analysts on our data team, and then have tremendous vendors as any good small business can have to fill in the gap. You know, great law firm, great accounting firm, you know, and whatnot. Sure. And so maybe I could grab two more people and probably be as big as i need to be in my business um and we do a very good job and i I can go speak at a cfa society or a cfp society or to individual investors at the aai chapters you know and i've been paid again not a lot but the the travel just to get me out there to this speak because there's no local resource and at the end of the day i with my undergrad in psychology working with children and teaching them motorboating uh skills in my other job uh, Mm -hmm. i hope that I can try to break down the complexity into digestible bites. I've gotten much better as my hair's gotten grayer. And then I've also really tried to learn that through the, the bumps and bruises of capital markets, because they it always are going to happen, but you never see it coming. And I always love with my psychology background, we go, what's a, a normal year in the market? There's never actually a normal year. There's just years where you made money and years where you lost money. And they all yeah, owe- there's there's <laughs> even decades.
1: You know, like having Meb Faber on the show talking about taking that really zoomed out view. There's even decades that are very dissimilar or multiple decades, you know. So I think people kind of they were were too anchored to the idea of of the norm. But you know, one thing that I'm curious about, so you have this, you have the data side of your business and then you're also an advisor and you have the advisory firm are your clients coming to you because they're already sold on the idea of closed-end funds and you know having them in their portfolio or are they coming to you just because of your general reputation and then you sort of educate them on the benefits of closed end funds.
0: So I, I have a peer firm where it's much more the latter, where basically they happen to be a quant manager in closed end funds, but like that they meet their friends through synagogue and neighborhoods and just chatting with people because they're friendly, intelligent folks. Sure. When we bought the firm and moved to 3,000 miles, I recognized my dad's book and the newsletter. We could have rebranded the firm, you know, Scott and Scott, or, you know, put our names on it. Like, you know, I, let's let's keep a name. It's obviously older and it's not tied to one human. You can always add partners and grow over time. So most people now find us. I've always, because my father's time with the press, really tried to partner for perspective in educating with data and comments for the press, helping those sources. I'm a small business. We don't have the the large marketing budgets of large asset managers with wholesalers and deep resources. So I've learned to focus on help the press. And they usually get it right. And people Google the word close and fun. The organic search traffic alone. And and this is a fun time. Today. Our main website is CEFadvisors.com. It's about to turn 20 years old. It is horrible. But you don't have to have the best website if generally older people are finding you and just pick up the phone and call you. Like this phone will ring and a retired dentist or engineer from California or New Jersey or Florida will give me a call. He goes, yeah, so either I own a lot of funds and I'm a do-it-yourselfer and I'm trying to decide when I get too old and, you know, mm-hmm. too looking to, uh, to not have me on the line. I want to go see my grandkids every weekend. Like Many closing investors spend the weekend catching up on their, their work. And so I'd say that's much more as we are more of a national brand. We're not a huge, we're, you know, we're a little under $200 million in assets. We've raised uh, uh, about 500 million in a UIT fund of BDCs. That's been the last eight or nine years. You know, we have a, a 65% of revenue is still, you know, fee-based. That's the core of our firm, but the data research, you know, people spend thousands of dollars um, a year for a daily spreadsheet, a weekly or a monthly, because we already need to collect it to do our job. We just, you know, I I tell people we found a way in telling them that other people pay for the tool I need the most. And for your
1: main, yeah. For your main business. Well, it's interesting talking about, you know, a 20 year old website. Actually, I love that. I think there's a a lesson there really with entrepreneurship and branding. I don't know where the, the phrase came from, but you know, the riches is in the niches. And if you, if you can, just as a strategy, you can stick to one thing and you know uh i don't want to say doggedly but uh consistently uh and and you know at a certain point you become associated with with that you know with that one thing um so I, i think there's definitely something to that and you know it's interesting with alternatives like this show covers alternatives there's so many different kinds of alternative investments the whole industry right now is undergoing tremendous growth, tremendous inflows of assets really has been for the last decade or more. Uh, But I feel like some of these products are kind of in the next generation version of, you know, next generation of BDCs, next generation of interval funds, next generation of certain types of REITs. And so it's, it's, it's kind of cool to see, you know, probably what was some people's vision 20, 30 years ago. And I feel like it's, it's, Finally, here. Do you do you have that
0: sense? I, I do. I mean, remember I said that one key feature of a closing fund is that disconnected market price. The listed fund, which is the, the, the most well-known, yeah, and their net asset value they ebb and flow. It's not perfect. It's erratic. You know, there's fear and greed, like.
1: That's value. great. Uh, John, I love that stuff. I mean, those are the nooks and crannies where you can generate alpha, right? In market The other thing is because of that, there's
0: no daily inflow or outflow of capital mm-hmm. like an ETF or open-end fund. So even though this wasn't the design in 19, you know, the oldest fund is a 1927 relatively boring U.S. stock fund. It's basically like an active S&P 500 fund in a lot of ways, but it's a closed-end fund. It trades, but it was pre-1929 crash. But the really useful thing is that fixed capital structure means that, like last week, you know, there's a closing fund of regional bank stocks, and its its manager didn't have to sell a single stock. He probably rotated. I, I can't, don't know yet because he didn't have to he could rotate between you know maybe he sold jp morgan and bought first republic and we'll see what happens um but an open and funder etf generally in those environments there's a net seller it's a similar structure but a different Like you're talking about for selling just because yeah. of
1: inflows well, and output, well, outflows.
0: andy let's say you have twenty five thousand dollars in the open and fund version of that regional bank stock you might go well, i'm a scared i'm scared i'm gonna pause i want my twenty five thousand 000 back the fund sponsor accepts your shares and spits you out cash. The closing fund manager just manages the money. And then if you want to sell, you go find a buyer in the market. If you want to buy, you go find a seller in the market, just like you buy regular listed positions. The other really interesting thing is they, in their capital structure rules, they're able to um, have leverage. So a preferred stock, not many use preferreds anymore, but the original leverage was a preferred stock, like exactly the way banks lever themselves. And they do that to add more, assets to put in the market, which means they've evolved in the U.S. mostly for income. There are non-income strategies, but even the funds that really look more growth focused will typically pay a quarterly dividend, sometimes monthly, just because investors learn to really appreciate that inflow of
1: cash into their portfolio when they're building an income portfolio. So is that, you know, at a really high level, Closed-end funds and and maybe to an extent BDCs or interval funds maybe they're the same maybe they're different you tell me but what's the appeal to an investor Let, let's say I know you live and breathe closed-end funds uh, I mean that is a compliment but let's just say I'm a you know I'm a typical Joe Schmo Jane Schmo investor I have a sixty forty I'm interested in diversifying at a very high level why closed-end funds why should I be including these in my portfolio? So- So, first off, I'll say because
0: we find they trade fine for us, and there's even billion dollar firms that don't have problems trading. But if you are a multi billion dollar firm, like, you know, and you're looking at closing funds, there's very few that you're comfortable with the average daily trade volume because it just looks very light. So, Mm -hmm. automatically, the general user base are portfolios under $100 million. Honestly, for institutional investors, the most t- 25 to 75 million is the most tactical book we see with our data clients and our contacts, where when things are boring and there's many other exciting things, whether it's SPACs or currency or crypto, they'll just have a small little portfolio. Then they will tr- triple it through periods like last year, or maybe even last week, because they go, oh, I can sell an ETF. And there's a closing fund that's kind of similar, maybe even the same manager. And his discount has gone from an eight to a 14. I'm making these numbers up, right? But, and now I can rotate from a similar nav to a wider discount. Oh,
1: interesting. So you're, you're, you're cool. telling me, you know, the, I, I think I get it. Maybe this is obvious. Okay. Talk to me like I'm five and let's, pre- but let's pretend I'm smarter than a five-year-old, but, The underlying securities then, let's say in a regional bank ETF or a regional bank closed-end fund, the underlying securities would both be down by the same amount, but then the closed-end fund would have an additional possible discount on a bearish sentiment type day. So just even as a purely tactical or rotational strategy... Uh, there will be institutional players who will have a little bit of an allocation to closed-end funds that they can scale yeah. up or down depending on market conditions?
0: Absolutely. And so, and again, there's only like one regional bank stock. I'm only using because we're recording yep. a tweet sure. The banks are failing. Much more common are like credit risk-focused funds, so high yield, multi-sector, CLO, senior loan, and then BDCs are a modification of the 40 act from 1980, but gained traction after the great financial crisis. They're basically $25 million or less loans to small U.S. businesses. Mm-hmm. And it allows you, you can take $5,000 or $500,000 and buy X shares of that BDC and it's in your portfolio and you've got liquid exposure to quarterly marked private loans. And those things generally yield, you know, eight to ten percent. But with last year's pullback, the increase in yield there because their assets are like variable. They're so like BD- BDC. Pay.
1: You you could almost think of it like a junk bond type risk. Well, income, but it's not. It's not a. It's not a junk rated giant corporation. It's just a, a small or it's a mid sized business or whatever yeah, that.
0: Most of them have at least a half billion dollars of assets. The largest have, very few have over 10 billion, but there's a few with 20 or 30. I mean, there's some large, like GSO Blackstone, large credit manager. Aries Management, large credit manager. They're the two largest on the listed and the non-listed side. And so you have that exposure, but the difference is like 90% of the loans are typically variable for 90 plus percent of those BDCs. So they're much more like a corporate loan. So imagine in the last- Oh,
1: so there's no interest rate risk really then. It's just it's default very risk.
0: Very little. And then they're very, going into everything, they were smarter than an average, you know, kindergarten or five-year-old. They had a lot of fixed leverage and variable, uh, variable assets. And so our index did 11% dividend growth rate on a one-year basis looking
1: back in time. So, so think- it's so so. If you own BDCs last year as a maybe as a rough re- replacement for some of your other fixed income, yeah. you'd be you were sitting pretty while everyone else was catching a bunch of falling knives, and you were saying. Thank goodness I invest with John Cole Scott and he has me in all these BDCs. Is that basic? It is about
0: a uh, small caveat. There's about yeah. 30 liquid BDCs and the homogeny there is non-existent. There are good BDCs that have good portfolios, good fee structures, good corporate governance to their stockholders. There mm-hmm. are BDCs that are sometimes good at credit, but bad at fee, bad at their corporate governance. And so there's a very different outcome Last year, BDCS were down 10 percent total return. But to say that they yield 10 percent, they were down 20. They were still down 20 percent. This okay. is where our client base is potentially different than some of the advisors we talk to. When people give us their money, we use our data, we use our experience, we use our brains to build an asset allocation, and then we decide which structures make sense, and then we pick the spots. But then we focus on income in a risk or tax optimized output. And then our da- our database can produce reports that prove and project. So we don't like being down, nobody does. Our diversified strategies were down 11 to 13% last, last year, total return after fees. I and mean, we have 16 different uh, types of investments. We, I can definitely, my, my liberal arts schooling comes through and how I run our firm. We have a lot of different ideas, but we just like to build what people need and, uh, some investors are fifty that hire us. Some are ninety. Some investors are a qualified account. Some are taxable. Some are in a tiny tax bracket. Some are in the god loving. Yeah, you account.
1: can't. You can't. I wouldn't think you'd have one portfolio model that applies to everyone. Everyone has different goals, time horizons. Some people need, you know, more income. Well, one one other question about these BDcs, you know, zooming out. You know, I I guess I again I wasn't really around or I wasn't covering the industry, but I feel like BDCs had a pretty bad reputation or or at least a, a mixed reputation, shall we say? Uh, but you know, like I said, the next generation of them seems like there's a lot of excitement around a lot of the newer products. But why are there still poorly run, poorly governed, high fee BDCs? Like, what is it about the marketplace that's allowing them to raise capitals? It's so- just that.
0: A couple of things. Because they're yield-focused, their shareholder base tends to be on platforms like Seeking Alpha, where very intelligent people can write about BDCs and your pet monkey can write about BDCs and then insert other investment there. Another thing is back in 2014, the uh, there's a ruling for indices that have funds in them that were BDC funds. Because BDCs are closed-ended management companies. They're 40-act funds. They just look a little different. They act a little hairier than a regular muni bond closing fund. But if there's a 2% expense ratio, and that's not the, the answer, it has to be weighted in the acquired funds fee. And that might confuse most retail, but it meant the fact card for an ETF that included BDCs had a higher expense ratio. And just for, for giggles, I went to the exchange conference last February in uh, Miami for ETFs, because I have friends down there, it was warm and I, you know, I can always learn something. And it's so interesting that ETFs, in my in my experience, seem to only be sold on, you know, like tracking error, expense ratio, you know, versus closing funds tend to be sold. How wide is the discount? How high is the yield? How good is the manager? And so there are, those removed a lot of institutional investors from BBCs. And so that means there's less smarter people voting their 13 filings, which is the way that larger institutions can say you're a good manager, you're a bad manager, improve this, hurt this. There's a few activists in this. So you,
1: so you're basically saying there's retail investors they're looking for income, and that um, maybe I'm on Seeking Alpha or Twitter or whatever. Who who knows? And uh, on paper, this BDC looks great because the yield is this or that. But the fees are very high. Whereas in, in ETFs, if you don't, you know, and I covered the ETF space many years ago. And I mean, I th- it was the case even then when we when we started ETF database and we were building out our database covering that world. Even then, if you didn't have a competitive product, you didn't survive. You know, I mean, maybe there were maybe the first 50 out of the gate that had, you know, the good ticker names, et cetera but really even even in the second wave and we're probably in the fourth or fifth wave of ETFs now but even in that second wave if you did not have a very competitive expense ratio and a good index and you know pretty good liquidity you were just going to get squeezed out of the market by Vanguard by Schwab you know by the, these bigger players so there's not, sounds like there's not that kind of a market dynamic in the BDC industry. It is. And at the end
0: of the day, I mean, it's uh, a lot of people are attracted to yield. And we always try to use the phrase dividends at a close end fund and a BDC are policies set by a board of directors that then the portfolio managers team have to execute towards. And then they some funds move their dividend policies all over the place. Some keep it the same, even if they're eroding capital and giving you back your own money, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. They just hold it the same. And unfortunately, imagine two credit managers. One goes, okay, our leverage is this, our earnings are this. Let's, let's move this up one cent. Let's move this down two cents. Let's ride the, the waves of the movement of net investment income from our investments and the costs from our liabilities. Just like if you're in a household, and you suddenly your gas prices go down. You can spend more somewhere else or save more. And if like your restaurant prices go up, you, I mean, you've got to balance things out over time. And what's interesting, the funds that do that sometimes trade worse because people see change and nobody likes change. And there's a couple of funds and I maybe don't go to funds on this podcast, but that have never changed your dividend policy. And people say, Thank goodness for this fund. They've never changed it. And
1: I go, yes, but what'd you pay for it? What's it worth now? And John, I I feel like you're almost telling me that investors in BDCs tend to be um This is close to, to dumb. Well, <laughs> I would say so on average
0: they have a more likely to have a college degree and have more money. But okay. as you know, that doesn't mean you're not smart at investments. Because, because we're a, all
1: humans, we're all psychological, emotional. A lot of people. emotion, and yeah, do, you're you're preaching to the choir, John. I mean, I you know I work with private equity funds and I work with sponsors, and I try and always scream from the rooftops. You know, underwriting is important, IRRs is important, all this stuff is important. But human beings, investors, even at the institutional level, even at the RIA level, we all have emotions. We all have psychology, and we don't make decisions based on rational logic. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it's not that those things aren't important—pro forma, risk, underwriting—all that's important. But that's not at the end of the day. That's really not what sells funds. It's not what sells securities. Usually, it's a story, you know, or 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 what you're talking about with uh, you know a story of a consistent dividend. It's simple and it, it you know, people will latch on to something like that, right? And I was talking more about closing funds there than BDCs, but it, okay. the, it's about
0: 50 listed BDCs, about 450 listed closing funds. It's about okay. a 500 university world um, and, and there's always moves. But there are funds that I expect until my dying days will never cut that dividend. Like they will take the ship down because they don't know what to do if they've done it. Were, well, that's
1: their brand. I mean, if if that's your brand and that's what everybody knows you for, then it's almost like, you know, I, I see the logic that you would fall on that sword, go down with the ship.
0: And so hopefully a simple concept for your listeners that are dabbling in closing funds, I would say definitely, you know, the dividend policy is that is a, is a policy, not that promise like You bought a bond. It has to pay your coupon every six months or bankrupts and that premiums aren't always bad. But if you have an overpaying dividend tied to a premium and then the market shakes or the board finally changes the the math you tend to have an outsized downside reaction because if a bond fund at a 10 discount cuts its dividend 15% and a bond fund at a 10 premium cuts dividend 15% can you guess which one goes down more in magnitude the next day and you don't even trade close in funds
1: you could probably yeah. yeah. So okay I you know these are fairly what's the word I'm looking for, esoteric. I mean, for everyday investor, these are a little bit more, there's a little bit more to wrap my head around. I think, you know, what I'm hearing, these products, you know, close end funds, BDCs, and, you know, maybe depending on the type of interval fund, they offer quite a bit of yield or income usually, you know, again, depending on the fund. But then there's also, because of the idiosyncrasies or the nooks and crannies of the of the market, opportunities for inefficiency, you know, inefficiencies and therefore opportunities to generate alpha.
0: And to, exactly. and to be a contrarian, because so imagine if like, so this year, last year, energy was, was kicking butt, you mm-hmm. know, and, but the year before it wasn't. So there are fatter discounts and beat up naps. And then last year, real assets had a bad year. And so the munis, because duration risk is real. And I don't know this year's outcome, but we are overweight, Unis as it makes sense for the client's income, risk, personality, and overweight real assets because we'd love to be a contrarian because we don't have to be, we don't daily trade. We can trade daily, but we're not daily trading for any one client. We're not. So
1: you're, trading. John, you're a value shopper, it sounds like to me. Like, so REITs, publicly listed REITs right now, or publicly traded REITs, they're often well, trading at a pretty big discount compared well, to
0: real estate closed end funds. So, I mean, we, oh, okay. are, and so there's about 15 REIT real asset closed end funds in the listed market. Mm-hmm. And then I mean, we love the liquidity of the, of the listed market. And some funds can have five, 10, 15, 20% private exposure, which you cannot do over 15% in an open end fund. And sometimes you really want to be in those private companies because so many companies are not becoming public or going public later, you're missing out on so much of that trajectory. But the challenge is, because most investors dislike too much private, if there's too much private, they give it a discount penalty for not knowing what the private marks are of that portfolio. However, there's newer funds, not new, they're 1989, but newer growth, have been in interval funds where you actually, it looks and feels like an open-end fund. You can inflow daily, it can be 80% private equity, private debt, and they only offer typically 5% of liquidity a quarter, and the board could vote for two more percent if they wanted to. And that's a great way to get large outsides, illiquid investments in a way you can monitor it regularly and not those normal lock-ins. You can do $5,000 for both funds. So it's not a private fund. It's not well, a- Well,
1: okay. You know, I wanted to ask you about interval funds, and you, we I had another guest on recently. We were talking about B REIT. And, you know, so some of these products, whether interval funds or intermittent liquidity products, you know, as you mentioned that 5% redemption limit uh, quarterly or, you know, whatever that limit may be, maybe a monthly limit redemption limit or quarterly or both, you know, my, I don't want to say my objection, more my question is, how are they being sold to the retail investor? What is the retail investors understanding of them? Do they truly understand intermittent liquidity? You know, I think in the human mind, you can kind of round that up to saying, oh, it's liquid, but you're forgetting about the intermittent. And then now I I use a phrase, are these things half pregnant? It's like either you're liquid or you're illiquid. If you're intermittently liquid, then I would say, well, that's not really liquid because really, when does the liquidity matter? It matters in a bear market, or it matters in times of volatility when things are going bad. And so, if the liquidity disappears, or is is very limited when you need it most, then to me it's like okay, maybe semi-liquid, or you know, or just in the human. And again, I have no problem with issuing these types of funds as long as it's communicated what they are and how they work. So to me, that's really the challenge: do the retail investors understand what happens in times of market turmoil to these products.
0: So a couple things, it took us years to actually even consider interval funds. And then really what happens, we started seeing managers that we liked their other funds, their listed funds, Bring like PIMCO, which is a well-known asset manager in the closing fund space with taxable, credit, and missable, brought out Pflex. And suddenly, most of their closing funds were at premiums. So you're paying a dollar ten per net. So now the question and the, and the expense ratios are essentially the same. Asset allocation is a little different, but in leverage is a little bit less, but they're very much, you know, sisters, not cousins or neighbors. And yeah. so you could say, I could take a dollar 10 to buy a dollar of a publicly liquid investment where the dollar 10 could become 90 cents in a down market, you know, no guarantees. Or I could spend a dollar on a fund where it's going to stay a dollar and move with the actual portfolios work but I have to be willing to worry about the liquidity. So this is how we address it. Some clients, we talk about interval funds and what they are, and we can drop your volatility with downside you know, downside discount volatility by having overweight interval funds. Now overweight to us is 15 to 25% because you. I don't think any investor should be all illiquid anything because everyone has unexpected things in their life. We're, we, we manage money for retired investors not four hundred year old endowments that'll be here four hundred years from now, you know right. we don't manage money in that that mindset, and we also tend to put just two to three percent in a fund versus for listed funds, it tends to be you know two and a half three to five, maybe six six if you ever see me doing six percent in a fund, it is a sweet spot home run manager discount sector it's perfect almost doesn't happen very often that's how we deal with it and then when discounts got narrow pre-covid we were a little bit overweight interval funds because discounts were only two percent on average when they normally average eight percent and then what happened is since covid it's been slower we've actually reduced interval funds to buy more deeply discounted closing
1: funds but so for you i mean you're you're looking for pockets of value and you're it sounds to me like you're you know you specialize in these closed-end funds the bdc's the interval funds you're a little bit agnostic or willing to go into different wrappers depending on the current market conditions. It that is makes
0: it- with the client. Yeah. And so when a wholesaler calls me and I go, okay, Give me your, we have a database. I pull them up in my database. I look through expenses, I look through performance, I look through their holdings. I go, Is the wrapper and the illiquidity worth the squeeze?
1: Mm-hmm. Is this
0: something where, because, you know.
1: Well, more- so wait, let me ask you about that though. You just said, Is it worth the squeeze? So do you treat an interval fund as essentially an illiquid product? I do. I yeah, I think so. That's fund- why. That's you see that John. We're we're of the same mind then. I think because I'm saying you can't be if you need the money within three years. Yep. So that so then you can't be half pregnant. The interval fund is pregnant, and that's what my that's my concern is not 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 your firm, not you, but you know our invest like investors in Bre Do it seems like boy is there a stampede for the exits right now? It almost you know it, it kind of I kind of wonder. What was their expectation investing in that? You know, and so
0: um, they also have a B cred. That's the non-listed BDC. It's actually the largest BDC by total assets, and in our database, and we license data to them for their their use. So I know them pretty well. And, and the guy that does my buys myself also does B cred, uh, B read. Sorry. So we know about it. And I, I'm 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 treasurer of two 501c3s. One is my William Mary Lemma Association. We have outside assets and one of its investments recommended recommended by the investment management firm we hired, but I obviously review that is B Read. And it was up eight percent last year. But again, our portfolio is not a retired income portfolio. It's mm. it's, it's 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 an endowment
1: for it's an endowment, the third yeah. Largest quasi
0: endowment legally, but the third largest alumni association in this country for an entity that's 330 years old. So when
1: you're, when you're buying b read in the portfolio like that, you can treat it as an illiquid investment. Like you don't actually need the liquidity for an endowment, or you might need a little bit.
0: And and again, that, that portfolio is like a $12 million portfolio. And we put, I think three or three and a half percent in it. And we put three or three and a half in an open-end fund, because that's what we use with that platform of, you know, an open-end fund of listed real assets. Yeah, I mean, and
1: again, this isn't really... (laughs) It's not really about product design. It's more about the distribution. That's just, that's my question with these products is, is that last mile of the retail investor, are they understanding, you know, you're better off thinking of it, it like you think of it, that, it's just primarily illiquid that may give me some liquidity if you know yeah. sometimes but i mean more
0: but, liquidity than a than the private like a hedge fund a lot a, you know prior drawdown right. fund, a you know 10-year fund and again part part of being the treasurer of 2501c3s part of selling data to my peers and talking to fund sponsors and i can't talk to everyone i'm only one human but i yeah. talk to a lot of people not as many as you andy because that's your job but a lot of people <laughs> I set up a 501c7 trade association in 2019 to bring the industry together. We have a weekly podcast. That's actually, I think how we met, was chatting about podcasts. And we do events and we try to bring investors and advisors and platforms and create a unified place to create content. And I say, don't shoot yourself in the foot. And I talked to Morgan Stanley about how they should think about interval funds. And I go, you know, and they do require every financial advisor there to sign off that every client is aware of the reduced liquidity of that fund. I'll bet you there's some firms out there that aren't requiring their investment advisors to claim that.
1: Okay, so this is on. You're you're telling me even in this this uh, organization that you've set up, this is already this what I call the last mile. It's already on on the radar of a lot of these larger organizations. It's on your, it's obviously on your it radar.
0: And like you know, we yeah. just see a TD Ameritrade becoming Schwab, and I push again. I'm not, I'm not their biggest client, but I'm like you know, when a client sees a brokerage statement, this interval fund. In a mutual fund labeling system, just like closing funds are in common stocks and they're not a common stock. There's common stock of a fund that's going to be nerdy about right, it. I right. like, can you please just take 10 minutes and put interval fund for these ticker symbols? You know, buy a database, buy my database, buy somebody else's database. You know, I mean I'm, I'll sell you the data if you want, but just get it. And that way to investor, oh, these are my interval funds. These are my ETFs. These are my common stocks. These are my closing funds. Just properly labeling things to me will help a lot. And then advisors and investors won't be mis- you know misunderstanding what they could have access to in their tax accounts, in their qualifying
1: accounts. Oh, totally. It, it's so interesting that there is so much value in getting the basics right. And it's it's like, this is true for uh, a mom and pop retail investor all the way up to ultra high net worth family offices who like are doing transactions where they should be completing a 1031 exchange, but they're not, you know, they did, you know, it's like just guys, let's, let's just get the basics right. You're probably two thirds of the alpha you can generate is like uh low hanging fruit, you know, just basic tax planning, um, really basic best practices, like what you're talking about. So I know we're almost short on time here, John, but I want to ask, you know, you cover closed end funds, you cover BDCs, you cover interval funds. Where do you see the most growth coming from in the next three to five years, you know, within those wrappers? Do you see it was one of those segments really have the most momentum behind it right now?
0: So the listed fund market was doing great. A couple of very large funds had very, again, they were great ideas in 21. They were horrible ideas in 22. That market tends to take longer time to come to market. It's usually large IPOs and about a month of raising capital. The interval fund market was really growing uh, the fastest, um, nice regular increases in the funds. Some Some funds always die every year. That's the nature of an economy or a market. Sure. The biggest increase right now are non-listed BDCs, hmm. and people doing, you know, things that kind of mimic that in a way. Now, I don't know the future. I think that the non-listed BDC structure, while a beautiful structure, you know, Blackstone has one, Nuveen, Churchill, TA, Craft, whatever they're called now has one. and the, Lots of people have them. And then, you know, they're useful. Um, as long as you understand, what's the fee cost? What am I getting? Are they good at credit? Am I getting up the up middle market, lower? Is it more, is it more variables? You know, there's mixes and different pieces in that neighborhood. I still think the interval, in my head, if I were to step back even beyond my world, if I say the most too usable, and again, I'm an active person, so this is my bias, funds in the market are the interval fund and the active ETF because they're, they're barbells. And that listed closing fund, which is actually my DNA and my my backbone almost, is a beautiful structure. But there's so many benefits of an active ETF
1: mm-hmm.
0: and there's so many benefits of an interval fund. And I always tell fund sponsors to have one or the other. You should have a you should have both because you can sell them differently at different times, different ratios to different advisors. it should be the same advisor, but advisors that do ETFs are usually different than advisors that do interval funds in my personal experience. And so I just think more products and more education, differentiated projects. So prove your wrapper, true, prove your guts and prove your value. Like when you're the only private equity interval fund, you you're pretty good. You know, you're you're top of your class. If there's 10 and you're the bottom 10 percentile and you're not as good as you thought you were because now there's better platforms doing
1: better work, you're going to probably liquidate eventually or be bought and repurposed. Right, right. No, that's, you know, I, I can't argue with that. And like you said, it is the nature of capitalism. And we're going to have sponsors that are going to come and go. There's going to be higher quality products, lower quality products. And it's really the sponsors with longevity. Sometimes that can make it harder for startup sponsors, you know. But you know that's just kind of a fact of life. Um, I I think it's fair for investors to look at track record and you know to to evaluate players that are consistently bringing excuse me yeah quality products to market at you know with fair fee structures and proving themselves over time. John, I I can't thank you enough for demystifying this stuff. I still don't. I I can't say that I totally understand all of these product types, but I'm a heck of a lot closer well, to I'll understanding
0: for, them. For those that want to dig in April 19th, I think at two o'clock, we do a quarterly research call covering all of this. There's a live session that's replayed. There's a 60 content slides. So that this is your fire hose if you've liked what you've seen so far. And then also the activists Company Alliance is AICAlliance.org. We have a weekly podcast. I'm not the host. We have a professional host. We actually sponsor a segment with Chuck Jaffe. He does a great job. Um, and it has me as my peers as fun sponsors, and we cover the gamut and it's a 10 to 12 minute digestible bite that I think could be very useful. And, and I think those are the two best things we're doing, plus some in-person events and some virtual content over time.
1: So, John, where can our audience of advisors and high net worth investors go? What's what's the main website they should so check out?
0: For the for, for what pays my bills is cefadvisors.com, and our research site is CEFdata.com, but you can link right off the first to the second. And to my separate legal structure that's, you know, my nonprofit, it's AICAlliance.org. And that is and again, that's actually a brand new website. It shows you what I can do if I have to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'll be sure to link to all of that in our show notes, which are always available on wealthchannel.com. John, thanks again for joining the show today. Andy, appreciate the invitation. I hope to chat in the future.
0: That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another
1: episode.